We're returning to 2 Corinthians tonight, to the middle portion of what's often called Paul's fool's speech, where Paul confronts the Corinthians over their preference for the false teachers in Corinth and their corresponding rejection, or at least considering rejection, of him and possibly even his message. We looked at an introductory portion of that last Lord's Day, and now we turn to some of the main parts of this section as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16-33. So please be listening carefully as we turn to 2 Corinthians. This is God's word for us this evening. Chapter 11, starting in verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus... He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Herodus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is God's word. Paul is doing two things at once in this passage. Two things that, for reasons I'll explain in a little bit, we probably need to separate to more fully appreciate. First, Paul is confronting the cultural roots of his opponents of the false teachers boasting and what it is about them that attracts the Corinthians. And second, Paul is positively putting forward a theology of how weakness and suffering relate to the gospel and to following Christ. Now, in his particular setting, Paul was able to do both of those things at once, but as I said, we'll need to separate them out to fully grasp them. Now, we've already previously spoken about Paul's theology of weakness and suffering earlier on in 2 Corinthians, and that theme is going to continue in our text that we look at next week. And so tonight, I want to focus on that first component, Paul's exposure and confrontation of the root values of the Corinthians, 
and of the false teachers. What I want us to see, and what we might need to do a little bit of work to see clearly, is that in our text, Paul is exposing the Corinthians' enslavement to the esteem of their culture, and therefore their, their enslavement to the values of their culture. He's exposing their captivity to the esteem and the values of the world that was around them. And we can easily miss how forcefully he was actually doing that. Paul in this passage is using biting irony. He's mocking the Corinthians and the false teachers, the speech that would have seemed utterly absurd to them. And the fact that it doesn't usually seem utterly absurd to us, the fact that this speech can actually seem kind of inspiring in certain ways to us, is a sign of just how much we can be in danger of missing the original feel of the text. Because generally speaking, we tend to esteem those who suffer for what they believe in. But the dominant Roman culture in Paul's day did not. The Roman culture in which Paul ministered, in which the Corinthians lived, valued strength and success, not weakness and suffering. We need to appreciate how much that cultural difference shapes the way that this text comes across. We tend to esteem martyrs, those who suffer for what they believe. In fact, we esteem them so much that in our culture, we even admire those who suffer for causes or beliefs that we don't agree with. We can go to a movie and watch a man or a woman suffer for a cause that we do not share in, and we can admire them. We can come away inspired and full of admiration, even if we still don't really agree with their cause. There's a few reasons for that, I think. One reason why we as the church understand this, maybe a little bit better than the Corinthians did, is that we're part of a church that's had a few more centuries, the church as a whole, to internalize these values that Paul is teaching than the Corinthians had. But at the same time, even if you're not a Christian, I bet that you share this value. Both religious movements and secular movements in our day revere their martyrs, those who suffer for the cause, even if they see no success from their suffering in their lifetime. And I suspect that some of that is a result of us living in a post-Christian culture rather than a pre-Christian culture. Many of the secular portions of our culture have continued to hold on to the Christian value of sacrificial suffering, even as they've rejected the theological basis for it in the Gospel. And so across our culture, people continue to admire those who suffer for a cause, even if they see no fruit from it. But that was not the case in Paul's day. As he ministered in a pre-Christian world, they did not value such suffering. They valued success. They valued strength and power. And that's why Paul's opponents were so popular in Corinth and why Paul had fallen out of the Corinthians' favor. Paul's life seemed to be marked by suffering and by weakness, while the false teachers in Corinth had strength and success. Paul lacked what the Roman culture esteemed, while the false teachers had it, and so the false teachers could effectively present Paul's misfortunes and humiliations as signs of his incompetence and his inferiority. And so in our text, Paul uses irony to expose just how captive the Corinthians have become to their culture's esteem and values. Irony, of course, can be misused and abused. Our culture is often overrun with unhelpful irony, with irony whose chief purpose is often to signal the cleverness of the speaker rather than to actually say anything meaningful. 
But David Foster Wallace points out that used properly, irony has an important role in communication and even in society. Irony and cynicism, he explains, are what hypocrisy calls for. The great thing about irony, he says, is that it splits things apart. It gets up above them so that we can see the flaws and the hypocrisies and the duplicates. Sarcasm, parody, absurdism, and irony are a great way to strip off stuff's mask and to show the unpleasant reality behind it. Irony, in a sense, can reveal and diagnose the unpleasant realities that may be hidden, that might be lurking beneath the surface. And that's how Paul is using irony here. And the way he exposes those unpleasant realities for the Corinthians is by taking forms of culturally accepted speech, forms of culturally accepted speech that were used for talking about one's achievements, and using it instead to talk about his weaknesses. The first form comes up in verses 24 and 25. Paul Barnett points out that it was a common Roman custom to list one's accomplishments, giving the number of times that you had received various commendations. In the first century work about the deeds of Augustus, Augustus follows this Roman custom of statistically listing his accomplishments. He declares to his audience, Twice I received triumphal ovations. Three times I received the curial triumphs. Twenty times in one did I receive the appellation of, him, of imperator. And seeming to follow the same format in verses 24 and 25, Paul says this, He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. The format would have been familiar to many in the Roman culture. And the ironic contrast of what he was doing would have been striking. Paul does something similar in verses 31 through 33. Commentators point out that Paul here is likely referring to what was known as the crown of the wall. In ancient Rome, the crown of the wall was a literal crown that was designed to look like a city wall. And it was an award that was given both in Paul's days and and really for centuries before that. And the crown was awarded for a specific kind of military achievement. A common feature in ancient warfare was the siege. An attacking army would surround a town or a city and they would demand its surrender. They might attack its gates, but these attacks might also be resisted. They might cut off supplies, but a town or a city might have its own food or water sources, and so they could sometimes resist the siege for months that way. And so what attacking armies would do is they would make long ladders and put them up against the city walls for soldiers to climb up. Now, climbing up such ladders was, of course, incredibly dangerous because generally the people in the city didn't want you to succeed. And so defending soldiers would try to push the ladders over while soldiers were on them. They'd shoot arrows down at the soldiers climbing up. They'd pour boiling liquids on top of them. And if the climbing soldiers did make it to the top, those defending the walls had other weapons to fight him off. And so one climbing would find himself terribly outnumbered if he actually did make it to the top. And so to motivate soldiers to climb those ladders despite all of the risks, Rome awarded the crown of the wall to the soldier who was the first one over the wall in a battle. Wright explains, 
In order to claim the crown of the wall, the person who, who actually was the first one over the wall had to return to Rome and swear a solemn oath, invoking the gods to witness that he was telling the truth. Something like, I swear before the holy gods who know I'm telling the truth that when we were attacking the city, I was the first one over the wall. And then the crown would be awarded to him. And it's something like that, probably, that the Corinthians would have had in mind, that Paul would have want them, wanted them to have in mind, when Paul says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor, governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was led down in a basket through a window in the wall to escape his hands. Paul's once again turning the Roman values on their head. He's taking a format by which Romans expressed their achievements and what gave them esteem in the Roman world, and he's using it to talk about his weakness, his lack of esteem in Roman eyes. As Paul Burnett puts it, it's difficult to escape a note of ignominy here. No scaler of the wall bringing victory, he, no crown of gold for his crowning victory, Rather, like a coward in battle, he escapes through the wall and is lowered to the ground in what may have been a fish basket. Now, the real punch of what Paul is doing here can be a bit lost on us, as we don't have those same forms of speech. But they wouldn't have been lost on the original audience. The absurdity would have been striking. It would have been funny. And he writes, puts it like this, he says, Paul is, of course, teasing them to bits. At one level, he is deadly serious, but this passage is also a wonderful comic parody. Even those in Corinth, who were annoyed at having their favorite hobby caricatured in this way, must have found it clever and amusing. Paul is at last writing his own letter of recommendation, but he's like someone applying for a job by listing all the things that would normally disqualify him straight away. Prison beatings, official flogging, stoning, shipwrecks. In the ancient world, all these would, not, would mean not only that you were an unsavory character, whom most people rightly avoided, but that the gods must be angry with you as well. The dangers he faced and the hardships he endured were not the sort of things that cultured and educated people, the great and the good, would put up with. They would have insisted on a military escort, or at least on traveling with people who could protect them. They wouldn't expect to go hungry or cold or without sleep. That would be very demeaning. Yet these are precisely the things that Paul boasts of. Paul's opponents had been pointing out to the Corinthians that Paul had utterly failed to live up to their culture's values. He had no esteem in the Roman world's eyes. And Paul's not disputing that. If anything, Paul's emphasizing it even further. He wants them to see that the false teacher's claim in this area is actually completely true. But that's not really the thing that Paul's worried about. What he's worried about is how captive the Corinthians have become to their culture's esteem. How scared they are to be associated with anyone who does not possess the traits that the Roman world values. They become enslaved to their culture's esteem, and so enslaved to their culture's values, and so also, as he mentions in verse 20, enslaved to any false teachers who meet that culture's values, even if it means they're rejecting an apostle of Christ. Paul is worried in our text that the Corinthians have valued the world's esteem over Christ's esteem. That is what he's using irony here to reveal. What then does that look like for us? Not for others in our culture, maybe, but for us. What does it look like for you and for me? 
suppose that there are a number of answers to that, a number of ways that we might struggle with this same thing. But if we think for a minute at least about our dominant demographic here, and so broadly speaking, if we think about middle and upper middle class, mostly white, fairly well-educated Reformed Presbyterians, I think one of our biggest fears is being seen by others as stupid. I think we're often sort of terrified about being perceived as stupid. And I think that that fear of being seen as stupid can take a number of specific forms. Let me name three. I think that we're afraid of being seen as anti-intellectual. I think we're afraid of being seen as ignorantly judgmental. And I think we're often afraid of being seen as opposed to human happiness and flourishing. Let me explain a bit bit what I mean by those. I can talk first about the first one. Some of you might remember a televised debate a few years ago uh, with Ken Ham, the prominent Young Earth Six-Day Creationist and president of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum, who was on one side of the debate. And then the agnostic scientist Bill Nye, known from his popular TV show years ago as Bill Nye the Science Guy, on the other side of the debate. And the debate was over evolution and human origins. And it got actually a good bit of attention in the media. I didn't watch it. Still don't really have much interest in watching it, to be honest. But I remember noticing that when it happened was that most of the Christians who I knew who were commenting on what was going on with this debate, either in person or on social media, were far more concerned with distancing themselves from Ken Ham than anything else. And I wasn't the only one who noticed that. Michael Brendan Doherty, writing for The Week, noticed the same thing. Uh, Doherty is a conservative Christian, but not a six-day creationist or a young earther. But reflecting on the events and the responses that he saw among Christians, he writes... At the risk of looking the fool, may I offer a confession laced with a little whimsy? In most times and most places, I have a load of sympathy and even admiration for six-day creationists, young earthers, and fundamentalists. As the debate between Ham and Nye unfolded, I found myself more and more disgusted with some of the self-styled, sophisticated Christians performing their giggles at Ham for all the world to see. There was something just a little ugly about all these Christians rushing up to their platforms, drawing attention to the sweat on their brow, putting a concerned look upon their faces, and proclaiming that fundamentalism is a modern error. And then, when they were sure everyone was listening, lifting up their eyes heavenward to pray, God, I thank you that I am not like this mouth breather, Ken Ham. Doherty goes on to say that these sophisticated Christians are striking a pose for people to see, and not necessarily one that's more scientifically literate than the six-day creationists they find so embarrassing. At the end of his article, Doherty writes, The bulk of creationism's fundamentalists are deeply sincere, and better than that, they are willing to be, in St. Paul's words, fools for Christ's sake. They do not live for the world's esteem. And so when the world next discovers a sophisticated ideology to get around thou shalt not murder, I'd rather have one obstinate fundy next to me than the whole army of eye-rolling Christians lining up to denounce him. Now, Doherty's point is not to do away with scientific inquiry or sophisticated biblical research and hermeneutics. He explains that in other parts of the article. His point is that this is often one area where we reveal that though we are Christians, we may still sometimes be enslaved to the world's esteem. 
Is that a temptation for you? Do you hold to certain sophisticated biblical interpretations primarily because you find them to be the most convincing interpretations of Scripture? Or is your primary motivation often that you hold them because you're afraid of being laughed at, of being seen as stupid, as an unintellectual fundamentalist? It's the same dynamic operating in your heart as was operating in the hearts of the Corinthians. Another place we may struggle with this is the fear of being seen as ignorantly judgmental. Our arena has argued that our culture is not really morally relativistic so much as it is focused on the value of non-judgmentalism, which tells us that no one should state or even imply that someone else's life choices are wrong or bad, and that to do so would be ignorant. It's a sign of being unenlightened, of being backwards, of being medieval. And so when we talk about anything moral, we tend to hedge. We speak as indirectly as possible. We're careful to present our Christian morality in language that can be easily misunderstood as mere suggestion. Now again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful in how we speak about the morally sensitive issues of our day, or that we shouldn't be careful to be humble in how we talk about sin and failure. We should. My point is that a lot of the times the way that we talk about moral questions is guided less by the desire to be loving to those we speak to and more by our fear of being seen as ignorant by other people, our fear of losing the world's esteem. I think too often the dynamic operating in our hearts is the same as the Corinthians. Well, let's consider one more. Our fear of being seen as opposed to human happiness and flourishing. Now, what exactly do I mean by this? Charles Taylor, in his work, A Secular Age, talks about how historic Christianity has something of a tension at the heart of how it views human happiness and flourishing. On the one hand, Christianity hardly affirms that this world is good, that ordinary human life is good, that human flourishing in this life is good, and that human enjoyment of and happiness over God's good gifts in the here and now are also good things. But at the same time, Christianity also firmly teaches that human happiness and flourishing in this life are not our highest good. There are some things, in particular our love for and our loyalty to God, which are more important than our happiness and our flourishing in this life. And so, though happiness and flourishing might be good things, we may be called on by God to sacrifice them for something even more important and more valuable, something like our relationship with God. Now, if you're a Christian, you would hopefully agree with that, at least in theory. And if you're not a Christian, you should be able to at least admit that if a spiritual realm does exist beyond the material one that we see, then there might very well be things in that realm that are more valuable, that are worth sacrificing our material goods for. Nonetheless, one of the significant features of secularism, as Taylor describes it, is a form of humanism that accepts no final goals beyond human flourishing nor any allegiance to anything that goes beyond human flourishing. And so in modern secular society, there's no greater value than human happiness and flourishing in this life. Now, as I've said, we need to note first that the God of the Bible delights in these things. He delights in human flourishing and happiness. But again, that second truth is there. That the God of the Bible often calls us, at times, to sacrifice human flourishing and happiness here and now for something greater, something beyond this life, something beyond this world. 
And because we live in the culture that we live in, I think we often find it easier to speak about the first part of that rather than the second. You see this, I think, when discussions come up between Christians and non-Christians on issues of personal morality, things like premarital sex or homosexuality. Christians will often try to convince non-Christians how much happier they would be if they were living according to a Christian ethic. And they assert again and again how unhappy they know the non-Christian really must be, no matter what the non-Christian says. Now, I should say, first of all, that I think these arguments are often right. I think living with the grain of creation rather than against it, that living according to the way God has made the world rather than in conflict with it, all of these things lead to a happier and more fulfilling life. But that said, we should admit that sin can be pretty fun. I mean, we can't have it both ways. If sin wasn't so much fun so often, then people wouldn't probably sin as often as they do. And for that matter, we Christians wouldn't be tempted to sin as often as we are tempted to. And so when we make those arguments about flourishing and happiness and morality, I wonder how often we're just scared to say that the gospel does indeed call us to give up things that might make us happy in this life. That God calls people to give up things that bring some sense of flourishing and happiness in the here and now. And he calls us to do it for something greater. That Christ calls his people to take up their cross and follow him. Crosses were not associated in the first century with either happiness or with human flourishing. When we're scared to say these things, when we're afraid to put it clearly, the same dynamic would seem to be at work in our hearts as we're operating with the Corinthians. The point, again, is not that intellectual sophistication or that, that moral nuance or that human happiness are bad things. They're not. They're no more bad things than strength and success were bad things in Corinth. The point that Paul is making about all of this is that these things are not inherently bad, but that they can become things that hold us captive. They can become cultural values that captivate us and which we value above the values of Christ. And we can be tempted to do this when we put the world's esteem before Christ's esteem. So that's the problem that Paul is trying to unmask here. What then is his solution? But Paul reminds us, both by the example of his life and his point implied again and again in this text, is that faithfulness to Christ means being willing to sacrifice the esteem of our culture. That is, of course, what Paul did and what he's doing even in this passage. Paul has listed some of his sufferings for the sake of Christ in our text, and we need to keep in mind that they weren't just physically painful things that he's listing, but they were humiliating. And there wasn't any grand background music playing when they happened to Paul. The moments didn't feel inspiring to Paul like they might in the movies that we watch when the hero was suffering. Those moments of suffering felt discouraging. They felt humiliating, and Paul felt despised by the world in concrete and unromanticized ways. We can look again at the list of his suffering. In verse 24, he mentions the five beatings he received at the hands of the Jews. Beatings that were not only painful, but as Josephus puts it, were considered a most disgraceful form of penalty. In verse 25, he mentions the three times he was beaten with rods. He's referring here to the Roman form of beatings, in contrast to the Jewish form that he just mentioned. The thing to note is that a Roman citizen like Paul wasn't supposed to receive 
this kind of humiliating treatment. But apparently that rule was disregarded at least three times in Paul's life. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was often on the road at a time when traveling was not always safe, even with the peace that Rome tried to maintain. In verse 26, he highlights how at a time where few bridges were available while traveling, he found himself frequently in danger crossing rivers. He found himself in danger from robbers, from fellow Jews, from Gentiles. Every place that he went, even in the churches, where false brothers threatened him. False brothers a lot like those he's having to deal with in this letter in Corinth. And then, unlike a finely paid public speaker, he did the hard and often dirty work of tent-making to support himself, and still he often found himself in want. And then, despite all of his sacrifice, he lived in constant anxiety about the churches that he ministered to, including the fear that after all he had done, they might still reject him and the gospel that he had taught them. All of these things were not just physical hardships for Paul, but there were instances in which he was sacrificing the esteem of the world around him. And why did he do it? Because he knew that the esteem of Christ was worth far more than anything that he was sacrificing. Paul knew that nothing would compare with the value of the esteem of Christ. We should be able to appreciate that too. Anyone should be able to see, to acknowledge, that the esteem of this world is fickle. People rapidly rise and fall. Sometimes it makes sense why one person gets the world's esteem and another loses it, but just as often there's little discernible rhyme or reason to it. But if there really is a personal God who made all things, if there really is a God who rules the universe, if there really is a God whom we will one day stand before and have to answer to for our lives, a God whom we will spend eternity then with, then of course his esteem matters far more than anything else. It matters more than anything else in the universe. And if that God is Jesus Christ, and he is, then Christ's values and esteem trump this world's values and esteem every time. And that knowledge is why Paul is more than willing to sacrifice the esteem of the world around him. You see the implications of that for your own life. If God, the creator of the universe, has spoken, then shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice the fleeting approval of our culture in order to trust what God has told us? Shouldn't we trust the maker of all things, even if it leads some of his creatures to laugh us to scorn as anti-intellectual? If sin truly leads to death, eternal death, then shouldn't we be willing to lovingly, carefully, but firmly speak truth about sin? urging others to submit their lives to Christ, even if it means sacrificing the fleeting approval of a culture that demands non-judgmentalism. If we human beings really were made for something even greater than human happiness and flourishing in this life, if something greater than human happiness and flourishing in the here and now really does exist, and if Christ offers it to us, then should we be willing to encourage others to sacrifice what may seem good or fulfilling in the here and now for something even greater? Shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice the fleeting approval of a culture that demands that we all affirm that there's nothing greater to live for than happiness and success right here? The same reasoning, of course, applies for other areas as well. Paul's speech in 2 Corinthians 11 would have sounded crazy to his original audience. 
but it was far more rational than anything his opponents were suggesting. As Christians in a post-Christian world, we are called to be strong and courageous. But even the strength and the courage that we're called to will not look like strength and courage to the world. It will be mocked and scorned. It will be seen as stupid and shameful in a variety of ways. The question for us is if we're willing to do it anyway. Are we willing to sacrifice the esteem of the world, to sacrifice the esteem of the men and women, the friends and family, the neighbors and co-workers who we know and even love around us? Are we willing to sacrifice it not because it's bad, but because we are being faithful to something and someone that is even more precious? And if we are willing to do that, do we appreciate the value of what we're pursuing? Do we appreciate with the Apostle Paul that this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension? And if so, then with Paul, let us not lose heart. Amen.